Hello and welcome to Cloud Insiders, the podcast that brings cloud down to earth, brought to you by Extrovert. Today we are talking about VMware Cloud on AWS and we are joined by Extrovert Senior Consultant James Kilby. Hello there, James. Hello. Would you be able to give us a quick rundown on yourself, um, what you've been doing in this space and what makes you the man you are today? Yeah, so I've been working for Extrovert for a little bit over a year now. Um, prior to that, I worked for a UK service provider in their infrastructure team. And my primary focus with them and with Extrovert has been around the VMware stack. But in both cases, I've had some AWS involvement. So obviously, when VMware launched the uh, VMware Cloud on AWS product, I was in a, a good place to take the lead on Extrovert's VMware Cloud on AWS practice and service offering. Brilliant. Would you be able to start by giving the listener a quick overview of what VMware Cloud on AWS is and what it is enabling organizations to do? Certainly. So VMware Cloud on AWS at the very high level is a VMware and AWS co-developed service. So they brought it to market together and it is effectively a VMware managed stack. So that's the VMware's hypervisor, uh, VMware's network virtualization and storage technology all running in existing Amazon uh, AWS data centers around the world. So they have, I think it's 13 regions currently live for this service. And it's VMware's platform that you kind of know and love, but it's managed by their global SRE teams together with Amazon for the hardware support function. And I think um, Amazon are actually launching a few more uh, later this year in 2020, aren't they? Yeah, there's certainly a couple more regions due to go live. I think they've been announced publicly now, but I think there's another three to go live this year. Yeah, cool. So VMware Cloud on AWS is allowing customers to integrate public cloud with on-premises infrastructure. Why is this integration so important? And conversely, what are the challenges of having public cloud environments disparate to on-premises? So I think it's uh, effectively the message around cloud is maturing. If you go back a couple of years, um, a lot of the leading cloud vendors were saying, move everything to the public cloud, we're great, we can do everything, we, we can do it better, cheaper and faster. And as the market's matured and people have tried to do that, they found that that's not always the case. Some workloads work incredibly well in the public cloud, and it would be unwise to try and run that in your own data center. And then conversely, there are some workloads that are not a great fit for uh, running in public cloud. Yes, you can make them work, but you, you might find out it's less reliable or more expensive or there's other downsides. So the, so the message across a number of the vendors has changed now to this hybrid model where you identify the workload and its requirement and then you, you run it where it best fits. So in some cases, within a single application, you, know, you may have a web tier or effectively a hosted firewall or CDN running within the public cloud infrastructure. And then maybe the database or other application services within your own data center. And what VMware Cloud on AWS allows you to do is kind of bring those two functions together so that you can have the best of both worlds now. And it's a choice as to where you deploy and you, you have much more flexibility as to uh, the platforms that you deploy on. But in a similar costing model that people are used to with public cloud, so it's a, a pay per use and you can scale up, scale down sort of things. So there are a lot of advantages to that. So you said right at the beginning that what's really nice about hybrid is having X in here and X in there. 
Yep. How do you know what to put where? Is it kind of just something that's written down in this massive table of contents or is it just years of knowledge and having someone tell you what needs to be where? Predominantly it's knowledge. There are some workloads that um, it, it's quite readily understandable where they will fit, um, whereas others you, you have to know the application and its requirements. And in some cases the, the IT team or the application owner will know enough around that. But in other ways, it, it may be worth reaching out to a specialist that understands the AWS capabilities of their services, VMware Cloud on AWS's capabilities, and conversely its limitations. And then also what's available on-premise. So obviously Extrovert, as uh, one of the leading consultants on this, can do this for you. There we are. So what does make VMware Cloud on AWS so attractive? Is it just the speed, value for money, and scalability, or is it the familiarity of having everything that you've known and loved your entire working life all in one place? To me, it's a blend of a, uh, a number of things. The, the speed of deployment is that headline thing, and it, it, it still blows me away that you can go from having nothing deployed to a fully built SDDC with uh, VMware's stack, vCenter, vSAN, NSX, fully built, fully configured in a couple of hours. That is... Yeah, I struggle to put in words how fast that is. Man, um, if, you, if, you, if you had to try and put a number on it, how long would you say it would have taken in a pre-VMC on AWS? So one of the large engagements that I've worked with recently, um, we, we did a VMC engagement and a refresh on-prem. The VMC engagement uh, and the on-prem design time was very similar. The implementation time was about four hours. For VMC, we're probably in the four to five months, maybe longer time frame for the on-premise equivalent. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't even put a percentage on that. That's just <laughs> yeah, that's out of this world. Yeah. I I I I, I, I interrupted you mid-attractive flow about a VMC on AWS. So, so the speed is that headline figure that um, stands out to me. One of the things when the service was first announced was obviously the cost. Originally, I thought it was quite expensive, but my attitude on that has changed significantly. There are a lot of companies that misunderstand how much their IT costs actually are because there are a huge number of hidden costs, whether that is whether you run a data center or you hire for one. There are a large number of factors that are generally excluded or not considered because they're very hard to quantify. Yeah. So taking power as an example, if, if you want to run your own data center, you, you need and you need it to be reliable, obviously. You need the power to run the service. You, you typically need two feeds in from the grid, two UPSs, two generators, fuel contracts for emergency supplies of generators, servicing costs, etc. That's just one example of just getting electricity to the service. And I've worked in companies where the IT team didn't really care about that because that was a facilities function. It wasn't part of the IT thing. Yeah. So although it may look expensive on paper, I think in the real world when businesses actually look at the true cost of what running their own operations could be, um, it starts to bring things much more into perspective. And, and as I say, my attitude on this has changed so that I, I, I genuinely don't think it's expensive at, at all. Bear in mind, you've got a full VMware stack, you've got the storage and NSX included. There's a 24-hour support operation around this. And then the other unique thing that um, the, the service between VMware and AWS offices, that they obviously take, you know, as you buy it as a service and you buy X number of nodes, 
your contract is obligated to get that. So if there's a hardware failure, either VMware or AWS or will pick that up and they'll remove that node from your environment and they'll automatically add another node in. Yeah. So it alters how you size things because potentially you can, you don't have to wait for spares or have to have hot standbys or have to oversize your cluster to take into account failures. So potentially you can get away with actually buying less hosts than you would typically have done. Yeah. The other advantage that that brings you, or one of the other unique features, is they have effectively an auto-scaling system. So there are multiple ways of buying uh, the VMC or VMware Cloud on AWS service. So you can, at its lowest factor, pay per hour per host. Or if you want, you can commit for a one-year or three-year term, and you get a significant discount in doing such. One of the things that is possible is to actually sort of mix the two. So you could buy a reserved number of instances at your base load of number of servers, and then you pay per hour if your demand goes above that and you allow the service to increase the number of servers. Because most businesses, they might run their servers hot during working hours, and then outside of that, they may not need that compute capacity, so they can effectively hand it back. Yeah, and not pay for that service. That's something that you can't do with a traditional VMware stack. You would typically buy it based on your peak demand. Yeah, you're not running hot all the time, and most of the time something's just sat there doing nothing. So this is a beautifully succinct way of getting around that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So what benefits is the AWS cloud bringing to an organization that's already running a VMware environment? Okay, so there are, there are a number. Um, Generally, if you run a VMware environment or a VMware stack, you typically, unless you're a very, very large organization, would only run that in a limited number of places, possibly as few as two, a production and a DR location. Allowing services to run in AWS potentially puts your compute or your potentially websites closer to the end users, so you can typically get performance improvements so potentially you could leverage say route 53 which is Amazon's DNS service and potentially something like an elastic beanstalk which is a sort of managed web tier and potentially their web web application firewall which is where you would take um, a website that may still be run from within your VMware based data center but you would actually push content closer to the end users so if you had a global service, it allows you to give a faster response to users located a long way away without having to deploy a, a totally new VMware stack in a, in a geographically closer location to them. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple in there like Route 53 and Beanstalk. Are those kind of your mm -hmm. most used, your favorite AWS services? So Beanstalk is a, a native service. Uh, a perfect use case could be where Beanstalk is controlling your web environments and, and then you would have a, a database platform run within BMC. That, that's a perfectly uh, good use case. I think one of my favorite services at the moment is Lambda, oh, um, yeah. which is AWS's serverless function. It's, it's kind of, um, how do I describe serverless? Running microservices on someone else's server so that you don't have to use yours? Is that a... Well, it's actually smaller than microservices. Ah, damn. Um, functions. Yeah, it, it, yeah. So Lambda is uh, AWS's function as a service, and it's very good for chaining a number of um, AWS services together. 
you may have it perform actions based on events. So I've seen it where it can control the firewall based on events within other AWS services. It's a great tool. It scales not infinitely, but close to. And yes, there is um, design time and build time, but the actual operational cost of running it typically is minuscule. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what the beautiful thing about serverless is. It's just like, just no price attached. And same as what you yeah. were saying about the advantages of VMC on AWS full stop. It's just sitting there calmly doing its thing and then off when it's um, not needed. Yeah, um, in a, a similar way, but a very different scale. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally different scale. <laughs> So what are the main organizational use cases um, for the adoption of VMware Cloud on AWS? There's a, there's a good number of uh, use cases, and I, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. So some of the companies that um, we've been involved with have looked at effectively getting out of the uh, data center and moving all of their workload to the public cloud. Some are using it as a versatile capacity. So where they may have a very consistent workload throughout the year, but there are predictable days. So it might be retail where obviously Christmas is busy. Um, uh, another example is gambling where they have a, a big sports event. It could be sort of like the Grand National or uh, World Cup as an example where they have to bring more compute online. And that's a... Uh, another good use case. One of the ones I've seen from Amazon, but I haven't actually seen anybody do in practice yet, is DR avoidance. So um, they described it as if you knew there was a hurricane coming and you felt that your compute platform was at risk, was to effectively migrate everything to VNC for a period of time. And then when you've recovered or if your platform is non-impacted to migrate back again. Um, and I thought that's a really, really interesting use case. Yeah. Does that work from a compliance point of view? So AWS and VMware do have a, a number of compliance certifications in place, and they are listed on the website. However, one of the advantages of this, because they do have this service in so many regions, is that there is a high likelihood that you can actually keep your functions still within the same country. So uh, although you may actually be moving your data, it would still be in the same boundary. So, for instance, there is um, within Europe, VMC exists in London, in Paris, in Frankfurt, in Ireland, and I think Sweden is the next. Yeah, um, they're, they're, place they're coming online. Yeah. So, there are multiple places within the US uh, and around the world. So, it, it doesn't cover every country, but for a, a large number of people that may be affected by this, there is a, a VMC region available to them. That's cool. Sorry, once again, I might have interrupted you mid-flow. Uh, is that all your points for uh, use cases and scenarios? Go as far as our hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the other one is potentially, um, obviously, businesses are looking to reduce their operational overheads at, at all times. And most companies, even the very largest, don't have uh, sort of dedicated VMware support teams running 24-7. Uh, Obviously, that is something that they would get with this service. So it is monitored, it is managed, it is patched by uh, VMware's SRE team. So there are potentially operational overhead savings as a result of that. Yeah, because you're getting to export a little bit more out from the IT team and free up a little bit more of their time. Yeah, <laughs> sure. The other thing that that brings is potentially sort of patching servers isn't particularly exciting. Um, 
and depending on what services you, you're actually running and um, hardware, et cetera, can be quite difficult to do and, and coordinate. If you can hand that off to sort of the specialists, the people that make the software, it allows your resources to focus on bringing value to your company rather than just being tied up doing mundane things. So it allows them to do more innovative things, potentially either saving you money elsewhere or allowing you to make money yeah. in another way. Beautiful. And what opportunities is it providing for organisations? Or is that the main one, the freeing up the IT team? Yeah, I think that's certainly one of the big ones. It's quite a new service yet, so I think all of the use cases and things haven't come out of the wash yet. And But it's starting to see quite a lot of uptake in some of the bigger customers. And a number of the ones that Extrovert are speaking to are interested in it and interested in its use cases and its capabilities. And how big can you make a VMC on AWS deployment? I mean, what's the biggest that you've been involved in? So the biggest that I've been involved in so far, so I've done the design for a engineering company where they were starting with uh, five hosts per region across three regions. Um, that's now been deployed, and then as they start migrating workloads into it, those hosts are likely to grow significantly. One of my colleagues has been working on a design I've had input into that, which is a 40-host stretched cluster design. So uh, bear in mind the size of these hosts, uh, they're all um, dual Xeon, uh, 512 gig of RAM, uh, 40 hosts is, is fairly significant. And am I right in thinking that that was one of the largest global deployments of VMware Cloud on AWS last year? Yeah. And at the moment, the biggest that I believe you can go to within VMC is you would have to speak to VMware before you did this because they have soft limits in place to protect the service. Mm -hmm. It just stops somebody going, I want all of the available hosts right now. But providing that they've got the capacity to do this, um, you can go to what's known as 10 SDDCs, that's the Software Defined Data Center, which is the smallest manageable sort of stack within VMC. You have to have an SDDC. And then within that SDDC, I believe you can have 10 clusters of 16 hosts. So what's that, 160? So that's approximately 1,600 hosts would be the biggest that they support today. Wow. And that's... Uh quite an overhead on management one would imagine which probably wraps it back nicely to that um, monitoring and management from (laughs) exactly if you if you're at that scale with that number of components then you're likely to get periodic failures it's just statistics when you get to a certain size failure is just the normal and as i say if you can hand over the operational piece of managing that um, effectively it'll become a non-issue you'll get a notification oh this host failed don't worry we're dealing with it. Oh, by the way, we fixed it. Here you go. Here's a new host. You're back up and running. Yeah, more um, of an FYI than a warning, really. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to get into that level of finesse, as it were, when you're driving this yourself. Yeah. And um, if you semi-ignore the design piece and purely in a deployment, right, we're ready to turn on, button is pressed, how long would mm-hmm. it take to roll out one of these mammoth deployments? Providing the capacity is available, it's three to four hours. So, yeah, I mean, doesn't matter how big the deployment is, it's always yeah. kind of roughly the same time frame. Exactly, yeah. I think a stretch cluster might be slightly longer, but I haven't actually deployed one of those yet. But what I love is, effectively, it's wizard-driven, so you go, it's a drop-down menu, where do you want to deploy these 
how many hosts do you want? Do you want it stretch cluster or standard? And then you give it some IP ranges for the management stack and then hit go and it will do it all for you. But the, the stretch cluster deployment is becoming quite compelling. Yeah. And VMware have recently reduced the price of the network transit costs for the storage replication. And that, that's reduced significantly. So you do pay an additional compute overhead as you uh, are using more hosts. But the service availability, which is backed by a, a VMware SLA, does go up significantly. So one of the nice things about the way that uh, AWS deployed all of their regions, or almost all of their regions, sorry, is that they typically deploy three of these. So that they're, they're within a, a single region, they have what's known as an availability zone, mm -hmm. which is one or more uh, data centers. And then, so a standard uh, SDDC within VMware Cloud would be contained within a single availability zone. A stretched cluster is spread across two of those availability zones, and they share no common infrastructure. And then the third availability zone gets what's known as a witness component deployed to it. So the, there is no difficulty in deploying that. However, if you want to do that yourself, something VMware happily support, but there are a number of requirements and complexities for that deployment that, in this case, VMware are just taking care of for you. Cool. So how easy is it to get started on this journey? And like, where do you start with something that could be potentially so huge, but I guess at the other end of scale, it could be so small? So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's very, very easy to get started. And I suspect people may want to do that. But it could be potentially quite expensive if you don't have a look at your workloads first. As I said, some workloads run really well in public cloud. Some work really, really well on-premise. On but then you also get, because of the way that VMware have used a fixed node type within VMware Cloud on AWS, or there's two families, but they're both fixed at the moment. If you are what I would describe as a non-balanced workload. So what I mean by that is it might be that your applications or your services require a huge amount of compute, but not much memory or not much storage, then VMware Cloud on AWS may not be the right thing for you. Conversely, if you don't use a lot of compute but need an insane amount of storage, again, it may not be the, the right fit for you, but there are ways of assessing that. So yes, it is very, very easy to spin the service up but uh, it's probably worth speaking to a partner that has knowledge of assessing workloads and finding out if it's going to fit and how well it will fit to give you an idea of what it's likely to cost. Yeah. Um, so VMware Cloud on AWS, yes, it is the VMware that we all know and love. And in some ways, it's absolutely identical to what you are used to. But in certain other ways, it's subtly different because it's run as a service for you. And VMware's design philosophy is all around protecting that service. As an example, as you are getting low on storage, with it being vSAN, that becomes uh, a potentially critical issue. On premise, you have limited options about what you can do, and you can certainly go above the recommended thresholds of what they will allow. With VMC, they won't let you do that, and they will automatically bring another host in for you to give you that extra storage. And yes, you would pay more, but it's all about protecting that service and protecting the, the VMware operations. So 
Yes, it is very, very similar to what you know, but it's possibly worth speaking to somebody with knowledge around this before you dip your toe in the water. You sound like a man with knowledge around this. Would you ring you? (laughs) (laughs) I might. (laughs) You say VMware will spin up a host to protect you. It's easy enough for you to spin up new hosts and kind of scale out your environment, and the cost goes with that? Yeah. I was, I was reading something on the FAQs earlier that just got a little bit confusing, so I just thought I'd double-check that fact. Yeah, so when you initially deploy the cluster you, you, um, or your SDDC, you choose your number of hosts. But absolutely, if you want to grow that manually, you can do that. You can allow the system to auto-grow. To add an additional host to an existing cluster, it's effectively one click, and then it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to add a, a single host. If you decide you've got too many and you want to remove one, again, it's a very simple operation. However, from a timescale point of view, what has to happen under the hood is vSAN needs to evacuate any data that's stored within that host. So it potentially could take more than an hour for the the host to be removed once you've triggered that operation because it has to ensure that it's meeting its uh, data protection requirements before it's removed. And uh, again, if you allow the auto scale up and scale down, it's a similar sort of time scale. And the, the system will add a host early to protect you, as it were, from the compute or storage exhaustion, but it will wait longer before it removes it. Okay. So it, it makes sure that you're under the thresholds. Yeah. Because you're actually a VMware Cloud on AWS Master Specialist, aren't you? One of um, three and extrovert at this time of recording. Are you finding that's helped broaden your knowledge and is it kind of opening doors for yourself and the company? Yeah, so one of the advantages of that, obviously we had um, uh, a number of training courses. Some of them were from the team that helped design and operate the service. But it also gives us access to some of the partner success teams within VMware. So if we've got questions around the service or potentially some roadmap items or Maybe it's a design choice that we'd like to have validated then having that competency for an expert. And I was part of the team that got that. Gives us a quite a big advantage, I believe. Brilliant. And uh, have you got any advice, tips for getting started and making it all work? Probably the biggest takeaway, I would say, is have a think about your networking. It's the probably the hardest part of BMC. Standing the compute functions up is, is relatively straightforward but it's how you integrate, or if you choose to integrate that with your on-premise implementation, what's that going to look like? What's your connectivity going to look like? Is that going to be an IPsec tunnel, or is it going to be a direct connect? So what speed and resilience do you require on that? How are you going to move your workloads into VMC? One of the really nice things about the service is it entitles you to HGX, VMware's Hybrid Cloud Exchanger product, mm-hmm. which is very good for migrating on-premise workloads into VMC. And it's got a, a number of uh, what I would describe as move methods, depending on what your infrastructure looks like and, and what the requirements are for, for the application. So you can do cold moves, warm moves, hot. So that probably the top tier would be the uh, layer two stretched using HGX from your on-premise data center into VMC, and then it allows you to vMotion a workload without changing uh, any of the IP addressing. Some applications really can't tolerate that change. The one that I've seen used the most is the bulk migration method, which is a storage replication function and then a cutover. 
and they've recently improved that now so it can combine the the beam motion and the replication into a single thing so you can actually migrate uh, a large number of workloads together with a with a beam motion taking place as kind of the final step beautiful so i think that's about it for today so if anyone would like to reach out and talk to you specifically where might they be able to get hold of you probably the best place to reach me is twitter i'm at james kilby wonderful and you can reach out to cloud insiders on at cloud insiders if you want to get some old episodes of the podcast you can get them from itunes you can get them from spotify you can get them from anywhere you get your podcast you can get them on the google podcast app we've managed to get everything up onto youtube and if you want to get hold of us and want to talk to us and possibly give some ideas for future episodes you can get us on team at cloudinsiders.fm james thank you so much for coming on no problem thanks for having me no worries thank you it's been absolutely fantastic and to everyone at home we will catch you next time <laughs>